1: Hi, I'm Amy Keene, and this is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. $1.4 trillion. You've probably heard this figure before. It's the amount of outstanding debt that U.S. students have racked up. It's more than twice the level it was 10 years ago, and it's prompted some to ask if mounting education-related debt will be the cause of the next credit crunch. This situation is being called the next financial crisis, potentially. Just last week, the New York Federal Reserve said the default rate on student debt had actually improved as more and more college graduates found work in the tightening U.S. jobs market. But the default rate on student debt is still higher than that of car loans and mortgages. So what is the real student debt crisis in the U.S. and what does it mean for the health of the economy?
2: Hi, uh, my name is Mike Rinali. I'm a 33-year-old guy in Philadelphia. I currently work in the marketing world uh, as a marketing director for a company local here.
1: Michael wrote to us about his experience dealing with student debt and being the first in his family to go to college.
2: It's the way to the easy life. Um, it's the it's the way that um, you don't have to ever worry about money anymore. Uh, you get, like, the dream job.
1: But at 33, married, and with two young children, Michael's struggling to find that so-called easy life. He's having trouble keeping up with his student loan repayments and the mounting interest that gets added to the bill each month.
2: I had been working in a restaurant since I was 14. I was making pretty solid money. Um, and, and I was kind of happy with what I was doing, but I was like, well, I got to go to college. And if I'm going to college, I got to do something.
1: He took out a $30,000 loan to cover tuition to study journalism at Temple University.
2: Um, you know, I, I still at this point had no idea or no concept of what uh, compounding interests looked like I may have known even what the term was I don't know um but fortunately like I said I I was a hustler so the day that I got my first um student loan bill telling me how much I owed them I was kind of ahead of it and I I was able to actually go and pay it off that day so at at the time I felt like I was in I was good I didn't have to worry about college loans or anything like that again
1: But it was 2008, and the job prospects for a newly minted journalism graduate were dim.
2: It was it was not it was not a pretty picture. It did not paint um, a very good um, picture for me of what the future would hold for a recent college grad. I had plenty of opportunities to do 100% commission-based door-to-door sales for you know printers and such.
1: And so, what did you end up doing for work during this time?
2: Um I kept working in the restaurant industry. Uh I, I was, you know, uh, looking at the idea of going and doing something completely unrelated to my uh degree just because uh didn't really make sense to me. I was going to be making exponentially better money than um taking that step back. And I already knew it. Uh, it. It was the comfort of um, being able to stay there. And so at the time, I was just persistent. I said, I'm gonna go back to school and I'm gonna get another degree because I just didn't do it right the first time. Mm-hmm. So let me, go get, let me go get the degree again um, and now I'll be good.
1: This time he was gonna get an MBA. Michael thought it would improve his chances of getting a job and bump up his salary. He got the job and that bump in salary, but he also walked away with a sizable debt burden. The sticker price for his MBA tuition was about fifty-four thousand dollars.
2: That that's the interest-free version of it. Uh, when you start factoring in what I'll
1: actually pay them back,
2: um, I, I think the the number is about one hundred and thirty-five k.
1: Michael says he's tried to cut the rest of his family's living expenses and keep up with those monthly debt payments. He even negotiated the repayment terms of his loan so it would be a percentage of his income over time.
2: You know, I've been deferring these loans for over a year now, um, and, and I'm looking to eventually start paying them back again. But I realize that um, I'm still accruing interest while I'm not paying them um, and I'm also depleting the amount of time that I'll have uh, to continue deferring them you know uh, I I make a good living um, and at the same time when you start factoring in uh, my student loans my wife's student loans as well um, my my pretty reasonable um, salary is in the red um so something has to happen you know one you originally you take a look and you say all right well we're not we're not going to go shopping as much okay so that's reasonable um and then you say um i'm going to lower the phone bill all right that's reasonable Um, but then eventually you start running out of places where you can, um, lower costs. And if you're still in the red with that, um, you know, I think when we start paying again, we're going to be at about 700 $800 a month in student loans for her and I, that we'll have to pay back each month. At 33 and at two degrees later, uh, At the very least, minimum expectation for me is that if me and my wife decide that we want to raise our kids um, with her kind of being that primary caregiver, that should definitely be something that I should be able to do.
3: More than one million people defaulted on their student loans last year compared to just 400,000 the year before. So
2: we have been very attentive to trends in Uh, student debt, and as you say, it really has escalated to um, an
3: extraordinary degree. College graduates are drowning in debt. In fact, in the past 20 years, the average student debt has more than tripled and now tops $30,000.
4: Student debt has emerged as one of the major growth areas of consumer credit in recent years and has really become a political hot potato.
1: Sam Fleming is the FT's U.S. economics editor, and he's been tracking the rise of student debt in the country and the effect it has on the broader economy.
4: Right now, student debt is around $1.4 trillion. Now, that is an extraordinarily high number. It's twice in nominal terms what it was 10 years ago. And for comparisons, there's about $9 trillion of mortgages out there. But The other major categories of consumer credit, auto loans, credit cards, etc., are all less than student debt. So it's a very, very important part of the uh, credit market now.
1: As of 2016, graduates in the U.S. walked away from a degree with an average of more than $35,000 in debt.
4: Uh, And there have also been an explosion of um, for-profit universities that have specialized in recruiting often lower-income students, also with the promise uh, of helping them make a better life uh, for themselves, and then find that those courses haven't actually helped them as much as they wanted to get good, high-paying jobs.
3: This situation is being called the next financial crisis, potentially.
1: There's a crisis, but it's not the one that people thought there was. Judith Scott-Clayton is an associate professor of economics and education at Columbia University's Department of Education Policy and Social Analysis. She spends a lot of her time researching financial aid policy. I talked to Professor Scott-Clayton because she'd recently published research on what's going on below the surface of that staggering $1.4 trillion headline figure. It's not that students are taking out too much debt and we have to fix that. It's that
3: so many students are defaulting on what seem like small amounts of debt. That's, that's the crisis. And it's a crisis for the borrowers that are in that situation. It's not a crisis for the taxpayer in general.
1: Who are the people that are sort of most vulnerable to defaulting? Without question,
3: students who set foot in a for-profit institution are at a very high risk of default. So the, the, more than half of students who set foot in a for-profit experience a default within 12 years. So the for-profits are uh, private, um, privately managed um, and run institutions um, that uh, typically are offering sub-baccalaureate degrees, so certificates and two-year degrees. um, But they have very high rates of dropout, and they're also very expensive compared to Comparable programs at public two-year colleges. So students who attend for profits tend to take out a lot of debt, and in fact, um, the for profits are uh, uh, most of their revenue comes from federal student aid.
1: Who else fits into this category of, of vulnerable students? So students
3: who do not complete a degree, and that rate is higher at for profits. But students who do not comp- who, who drop out of other types of colleges are also at risk um, for higher rates of default. Um, And then students of color, particularly black and African-American students, even outside the for-profit sector, we see big racial disparities in the rate of default. Uh, A big chunk of it can be explained by other aspects of family background that correlate with race, namely measures of family income um, and measures of family wealth also measures of how much parents provide support to their children while they're enrolled in school is also related. So that's one piece of it. And all of those factors also relate to attainment, which can then lead to lower rates of attainment, which is another risk factor for going into default.
1: And, And what about those people who say they just feel crushed by the burden and the size of their student loans? Part of the problem
3: really is in how we're asking students to repay their loans. The primary method that students are doing that is this 10-year mortgage-style repayment, which does not at all fit the realities of the labor, uh, sort of the life cycle of your career. Um, It's in the 10 years right after college that even if everything goes well, still that's when your income is going to be at its most um, variable and at its lowest relative to later in life, and it's when you are trying to just get off the ground and and start, you know, investing in these other areas. Maybe buy a house, get married. And so, why do we make students do that? Why don't we extend it over a longer period of time? And why don't we allow it to vary with income? And people say, well, we do have these options. We do have a number of different income-based repayment options now. Um, but the way they are set up is just so cumbersome. It requires a lot of paperwork, and a lot of students, even once they get into them, then you have to redo it every year, and so they fall out of them. And the students who are the most vulnerable, the ones who have very um, unstable incomes or it's changing a lot from month to month, those are the very ones that are going to have the hardest time navigating that paperwork and keeping it up to date. So they're getting the least sort of benefit from this program, which in theory
1: is specially designed to help them and protect them from default. I asked Professor Scott Clayton how student debt was handled in other Western countries. In countries like England um, or Australia, where
3: these income-based repayment systems are automatic, you don't sign up for it. It's just part of their system. It's, it's embedded into the system, and it runs through the Treasury Department, so you don't have to Write a check every month. You don't have to submit paperwork saying what your income is. They know what it is, and they don't take anything
1: out until your income gets above a certain minimum level. So to put the situation in the U.S. in context, students in the U.K. carry an average debt load of 32,000 pounds, or a little more than $40,000 when they graduate. That's according to U.K. government research. But the repayment system is just that much more forgiving for recent grads.
3: If I can wave a magic wand, it would be to implement a system-wide automatic income-based student loan repayment system. I think that would make a really big difference, and it would change our entire thinking about student loans as being such a burden. Student loans are supposed to be, I mean, we classify it as a form of financial aid. This is supposed to be something that's helping. Um, not something that is this crushing burden that that people perceive it as. And we do know that student loans do help students enroll in college. There's research showing that if you uh, limit students' access to loans, they're less likely to complete uh, credits and, and to persist in college. So sort of getting rid of loans is not what I see as the answer, but making them much more manageable, I think would make a big difference. And the, the challenge is that no system is sort of starting from scratch. And there are a lot of embedded and vested interests in our system. And um, no matter sort of what the, the research or the sort of a theoretical optimal policy design would be, it seems like there have been you know, very persistent barriers to getting to where we want to be.
1: Just last week, the New York Fed released data that show a slightly improved picture. Although student debt remains a big problem with people falling behind on their loans, it's actually gotten a bit better than it was. Delinquencies peaked in 2012 and 2013 at over 11 percent. But in the past quarter, that's fallen down to just over 8 percent.
4: Now that is the lowest that we 've seen since before the crisis since around two thousand and six so that 's an encouraging sign and the the analysis from the um, New York Fed is partly this is because of uh, students complying with repayment programs but it 's also uh, down to the strong jobs market. We are in a state now where unemployment amongst graduates is uh, you know, a couple percent. I mean, it's really, really low, two or three percent. And so given how hot that job market is for graduates, if you are emerging from university, uh, then you're finding it more more easy to uh, keep up with your loan payments just because there are a good number of jobs out there for people to take.
1: Sam, there's some good news in those numbers from the New York Fed, but this headline one point four trillion dollar figure, it still remains. So what does this mean for the macro economy?
4: I mean the concerns are are, are significant because we're talking about um, a generation generations of of students who are coming out into the economy, really some of them struggling under the weight of those debts and as a result of that, um, the weight of those debts, it becomes harder for them to borrow money if they want to start a business or if they want to buy a house. Um, and especially, as I said earlier, if they find that the qualifications they've emerged with from some of these colleges are actually not helping them get well-paying uh, jobs. The the, the, the the quantum of individuals' loans doesn't necessarily need to be high Um, in order for them to have real trouble servicing those loans. It's a macroeconomic problem. It's specifically a a very important macroeconomic problem amongst lower-income, often minority citizens in America. And so it's a uh, a huge concern for the future.
1: Thank you, Sam. There's so much more to the story of student debt in the U.S. and how it affects the economy as a whole. You can read more about all of this at FT.com, and we've linked to Sam's recent story on the topic in the show notes for this episode. If you have an experience with student loan debt that you think we should know, or if there's a story on this topic that isn't being reported, please email me at BehindTheMoney at FT.com, or tweet me at Amy P. That's A-I-M-E-E. We'll be back next week.